0: I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion.
1: This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind,
0: and get ready for the ride that is Beyond Beyond the the Box. (laughs) Dave Neil Foster from Beyond the Box. Hey everybody, welcome to Beyond the Box. This is Steve Sensenig. My co-host Ray Byrne Johnson is not with me today. Um, I'm flying solo on this one. But I wanted to share a discussion with you guys that uh, took place uh, about a month and a half ago. I had the opportunity to travel up to Pennsylvania to visit my family. Uh, many of you may know that my wife and kids and I live in a motorhome now and we travel around the U.S., And uh, we went up to Pennsylvania, and while I was up there, I took the opportunity to get together with Michael Harden, who I had been wanting to meet in person and spend some time with for a while, and we decided to uh, host a roundtable discussion at Michael's house in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, I want to say, first of all, very much uh, grateful to Michael for hosting that, and uh, as you may hear in the discussion, some... uh, clinking of cups and and spoons stirring coffee. Michael was great at keeping the beverages flowing for us during the discussion. Um, But anyway, uh, my intent in getting together some people to discuss some things was to kind of try to get a sense of what some some of us feel about the direction of evangelicalism as a whole. Um, As many of you know from listening to this podcast, there's a lot of Discussion in evangelical circles about things related to inspiration, inerrancy, atonement, uh, election, ultimate reconciliation, all of these subjects that are kind of on the table now and did not used to be necessarily on the table. Um, I don't know if we really stayed on that topic. It, it uh, like many things on this podcast, kind of took some rabbit trails. But uh, basically, that's how we started off. And so I invited Michael, of course, uh, he was at his own house, so he was able to be there, and uh, Pete Enns, who is uh, another friend of the podcast and has been on here before. Michael's friend, uh, Jonathan Souter joined us, as well as Michael's wife, Lori. I was very glad to have her there with us as well. And uh, a former college classmate of mine and a uh, co-worker of Pete Enns at Eastern, uh, John Olaf. Also, Pete and John drove out from the Philadelphia area to join us for it. And my son Dylan, who's our producer, was there as well, Uh, although he did not speak uh, during the the discussion, so you won't hear him there. But he was there at the table with us. And uh, we go around at the start of the discussion and introduce ourselves um, for two reasons, as I explained in the introduction uh, that you'll hear in a minute. One, so that you'll be able to hear who's there and get a little uh, familiar with them, especially ones that have not been on the podcast before. And also so that you can kind of place different voices in the stereo spectrum. Um, I just set a single surround sound mic in the middle of the table and we went around and and talked uh, that way. So you'll kind of get a feel for where people are in the the stereo field as you listen. Uh, If you're listening through headphones or through big speakers or whatever in your car, maybe you might hear somebody in the passenger seat and somebody out your driver's door. (laughs) Um, So anyway, without further ado, I'm going to jump into the discussion here. I will uh, start with the introduction and take it around the table so that you can meet everybody, and we'll see where the discussion goes from there. Here we go. We have a unique Beyond the Box today, uh, one of the few times that we've had a chance to have a roundtable discussion, and I'm here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, around the table at Michael Harden's house, and we are excited to uh, be sharing some thoughts with you guys. We're going to have a sort of a free-form conversation here. Uh, There's six or seven of us around the table here, that are going to talk, and we're going to take a moment. First of all, just to introduce each person, so that uh, one you can get to know the people that aren't um, members of the podcast already, and two so you can kind of get a place in the stereo spectrum of where each voice is coming from. Um, so that way you'll have a, a better idea of who's speaking. So I'm going to start with Michael, who's here to my left. Uh, Michael, you're no stranger to Beyond the Box. You've done more co-hosting on Beyond the Box than I have in the last couple of years. Um, but it's a pleasure to finally meet you in person. And, and even though most of our listeners are already familiar with you, why don't you just give a brief introduction of yourself and take it away.
2: Well, we're here on a sunny day in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And um, someday we're going to do a great big Beyond the Box conference so you can all join us live. I like that. And uh, we'll look forward to that time together. So I've, it's nice to be able to see old friends and meet new friends at this, uh, at this time.
3: Great. Thanks for hosting, Michael. Um, yeah this is Pete Enns I uh, teach biblical studies at Eastern University which is outside of Philadelphia and um, my area I guess is Old Testament and Bible in general and just the intersection of I guess ancient faith and contemporary life and thinking and how those two horizons can meet great thank you Pete for coming it's a pleasure to meet you
4: my name is Jonathan Souter. I live in western Lancaster County I was raised in the Old Order River Brethren tradition, I am now a member of Community Mennonite Church of Lancaster, which is on the progressive end of the uh, Mennonite Church USA, and I am currently climbing trees for a living, (laughs) but uh, my theological nightlife uh, continues apace, (laughs) basically from my teen years till now. It's good to be with the group today. Thank you, Jonathan.
5: I'm Lori Hardin, married to Michael. Um, Grew up in a conservative Baptist, flag-waving, violent God tradition. (laughs) Um, Very happily now fellowshipping with Mennonites in the Lancaster area. And um, just wonderful to be living with people who really act out and live the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount.
6: Mm.
5: And uh, it's been a pleasure for Michael and I to be able to help them with their theology Mm -hmm. to be able to not have to throw out their Bibles and just stick with the Sermon on the Mount but to Mm -hmm. um, have the whole Bible and understand how to interpret that.
0: Great, great and I I want to say personally I'm glad that you're here with us today. We've uh, actually gotten some requests on the Facebook group to include more women in our conversation so uh, thank you for representing the the female side of our theology as well.
1: John? My name's John Olaf I teach uh, biblical studies in Greek at uh, Eastern University with Pete. Um, my area of um, interest is the gospel of Mark and the uh, relationship between Mark and uh, the Hebrew Bible and uh, Second Temple uh, literature. Great, great. And John and I actually went to college together, knew each other a long time ago,
0: yeah. uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. went to Philadelphia College of Bible which then became Philadelphia Biblical University, and now is Karen University. Correct. So I've just gone back to calling it PCB because I can't keep up with all the name changes. <laughs> PCBs are bad for you. Yes, they are. And well, Maybe. yeah, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. It, it wasn't bad for me. <laughs>
5: I get the joke, but
0: uh, yeah, it was. It was an interesting experience, and and John and I both <laughs> learned a lot from that. Um, <laughs> And also with us around the table, although I don't know if you'll hear too much from him, is my son Dylan, who's our producer, and uh, we're always glad to have Dylan with us. Dylan used to sit with Ray and I when we recorded our podcasts years ago when we were actually in the same town, and uh, Dylan would sit there and listen in and eventually took over the producing role on the podcast, and i um, glad to have you with us, son. Um, As our listeners know, Beyond the Box is actually Rabbit Trail podcast, and so we oftentimes will uh, go off on lots of tangents, so I have no idea where this conversation is going to lead, especially with this many voices jumping in, but I want to encourage each of you just to jump in whenever you feel like you have something to say. This can be a free-for-all. But just to get us started, what I'd like to kind of talk about a little bit, and Michael, you've inspired some of my thinking about this online, gotten this at the forefront of my mind, um, is that there are many of us, uh, and and probably many if not all of us around the table, who at one time or even now still consider ourselves to be somewhere under the umbrella of evangelical. Um, it That term is a broad term and uh, has certainly gone through some uh, evolution of its own over the years, but there seems to be a uh, stirring within evangelicalism these days of people like us who are Asking questions, asking hard questions, rethinking some things that we just assumed were always hard fact and truth. Um, And so it kind of has caused me to wonder, what do we around this table see happening in evangelicalism and the future of it? Um, Do we think that, that there may be some huge split that takes place Uh, do we think we're just going to wrestle over labels and definitions Uh, I for one don't particularly care for labels but sometimes they uh, tend to be useful in conversation to at least get people in a position of of the general ballpark of where we are but uh, anyway and and let me ask the question if you don't mind putting it in the spot are there any of us around the table who don't currently or maybe never considered themselves to be evangelical under that umbrella? We all pretty much we were there, or familiar uh, with it, sure. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and some of the one of the things I think that is central to the debate right now within evangelicalism (coughs) is the view of scripture. And Pete, I know you have no experience with controversy in that regard, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, but you're you're raising some questions about reading of scripture and literal versus myth. Especially as it relates to the Genesis story, I think has been one of the hot topics that you've participated in. Um, Michael, you and I have participated in some conversations online about inerrancy, inspiration, and what those terms mean. And I think those those terms especially are pretty um, central to the evangelical definition. The way that evangelicals self define is usually starts with some view of Scripture. So, what do you guys think about where that is right now, and and what? what questions are coming up in the evangelical circles and what do you think uh, is happening as a result?
3: Well, I mean, if I can just jump in quickly, I think these are, they're not recent issues. I think they're recurring issues in sort of an evangelical paradigm. Um, They keep coming up, which is interesting. It seems every generation you have somewhere within the evangelical fold you have people questioning, saying wait a minute this this doesn't sort of add up it doesn't line up very well Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, uh, you know the question is why 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 do these things keep happening and on one end of the spectrum an answer that's often given is that well they're just not towing the line Uh they're naive they've caved in to liberal thinking or whatever but um, the other side of the spectrum is the questions may keep coming up because they haven't been answered well. And and I think that's, uh, you know, it's not a new issue, although I would be among those who say that I think today with easy access to information, internet whatnot, um, it's probably something that's more public, the discussion, than it's been in the past. That's it's a, not, that's it's a not a professor point, yeah. someplace getting in trouble in the 1960s. Right. It's, um, you have people having, with, with websites websites, mm-hmm. Podcasts and things like that, who are talking about these kinds of things more openly. And I think people might be more, evangelicals might be more willing to sort of see their. Voice articulated by other people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and where that's going to lead—that's anybody's guess. But that's what, something's what
0: you're saying is yeah. interesting because I, th- I think you're absolutely right that the yeah. internet has opened up a lot of this discussion. It's harder to to squelch the conversation right. uh, because it's not as localized. I shared with you before we started recording, Pete, uh, how I grew up in sort of a Baptistic type mm-hmm. of background. It was independent, non-denominational, but it was very Baptistic in doctrine, and I just pretty much assumed that that's what all Christians believed. And it wasn't until my college years that I began to run into people who believe different things and it started me thinking that maybe there was more outside of my little bubble Mm -hmm. within even just the umbrella of Christianity let alone the subset of evangelicalism Um, and I wonder if we are seeing a lot of that because of the internet because of a little bit more open discussion taking place if we're seeing more people become more quickly aware of Mm -hmm. life outside their bubble Uh, and if that's you know like as an example I'm a musician and I did a lot of uh, years of uh, worship music in church. And there was this move from hymns to contemporary worship, et cetera, that a lot of non charismatics blamed on the charismatics. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there was a sense of kind of some boundaries being blurred mm-hmm. between charismatic and non charismatic, cessationists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, do you see the same thing then? Is that what you're talking about with regard to just asking these questions in a broader spectrum outside of, of the
3: evangelical bubble. Um, meaning, uh, uh, traditions outside of evangelicalism, or do you mean...
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, is that having an influence, do you think, that the evangelicals are becoming aware of traditions outside of Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not new, but I think it's just right. exacerbated maybe in the last 20 years or so. You know. So you, you see this as you said as having happened in history before, sure. um, yeah. but it just was more localized.
3: <clears throat> and, and it's more, and controllable more controllable when it's localized because yeah. um, information control is easier if you mm-hmm. can actually control the information, and you can't anymore. Absolutely. So yeah, if you can ostracize
0: the one person who's teaching yeah. that
3: class, you can right. squelch yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Other thoughts you have about this?
2: Well, the the thing with evangelicalism was that it it became a subculture in the Really, post World War II, mm-hmm. um, and as Pete has already uh, pointed out marvelously, it it lived in its own little world. I mean, you had bookstores, music, mm-hmm. TV shows, radio programs, the, oh, the whole Colleges, uh, college, Bible yes, exactly. posters, uh, uh, <laughs> tracks, kits, tra- <laughs> tracks. It, it, it had everything. Yeah. <laughs> it had created its own little world. Never heard of evangelical pizza, though. Mm. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so the B2B people know I like to make jokes. The guys around <laughs> yes. the table are looking at me like I'm totally <laughs> right. so, so This the, can be very lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, so the thing with this, with this subculture is then in the, um, in the post-Reagan years, the evangelical subculture became a culture in America.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was no longer a subculture. And then with the, with the um, uh, Internet in the 90s, as Pete's pointed out, All of a sudden, the box was wide open. Anybody could go anywhere. They could look in all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And as a result, evangelicalism and fundamentalism both have been hemorrhaging for the last five years. There's Mm -hmm. just been an exodus away from this tradition because people are looking for something else. I would argue, I would say there are three parts to this. Um, One is sola scriptura, scripture alone as a a way of um, understanding what revelation is no longer works. Mm. Sola Scriptura is a false paradigm. Because in Sola Scriptura, the context of the New Testament is the Old Testament. So we look for structural analogies, and this creates um, uh, false uh, ways of thinking and doing things. The fact is, the context of the New Testament is Second Temple Judaism. But the context of Second Temple Judaism are the Jewish scriptures. But the Jewish scriptures have a context out of which they arise and to which they're reacting, and that's archaic religion. Uh-huh. So we, there's a, it's a much broader uh, paradigm now that I think people are beginning to recognize that we have to work with. The second thing is a theory of inspiration. That is where all the Reformed traditions begin, from Calvin forward, begin with a theory of inspiration. And every single Reformed confession, with one exception, begins with a theory of inspiration. doesn't begin with a doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity, revelation of Jesus. begins with a theory of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the theory of inspiration is a hermeneutic. It is a method of interpretation. It is a way of reading the Bible. And so when people say, well, we're just reading the Bible, yes. and what does the text mean? They haven't stopped and said, how does it mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How it means is more important than what it means. You can't know what it means until you know how it means. Sure. And the third thing I would say is that there are four pillars of of uh, con- uh, what I call Protestant orthodoxy, which is the uh, grandparent of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these four mm-hmm. pillars are found in Protestant orthodoxy of the nineteenth century, eighteenth uh, and nineteenth century. Evangelicalism fundamentalism. The first is inerrancy or infallibility. The second is the penal substitution theory of the atonement. Mm-hmm. The third is eternal conscious torment, and the fourth is the ethical justification of the use of force. Or violence, mm-hmm. and these four all go together. They go hand in hand. And to deconstruct one is to deconstruct them all. And this is why currently, when I'm on doing my blogs on Facebook and different things, and the um, any time I take one of these down, somebody's always asking, "Well, what about this? What about that?" Right. Or, mm-hmm. Because But they all belong together. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, is that I think for those of us that have a heart for Jesus. We're not interested in deconstructing evangelicalism. We're interested in reconstructing it as good news because the right. evangelical paradigm as a, as a paradigm is very beautiful. Theologically, it's gorgeous. You can see this in the work of Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. I mean, architectonically, in terms of the structure and the way this all works out in all these various doctrines and the way they fit together and are integrated, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The problem is <laughs> is that it's been virally <laughs> infected with an understanding of violence. Mm. So by taking violence out of evangelicalism, what you're
0: really left with Mm -hmm. is really good news. Mm. It's interesting. Ray and I just got an email from a listener uh, yesterday, I believe it was, about the topic of violence. And he said, you guys keep talking about nonviolence. Do you really see that as such a central issue? And I think what you're saying, Michael, is it is. Mm -hmm. That, That that is at least one path of beginning the deconstructionism is to... Look at the outworking of our religion, our, our theology.
2: Yesterday's New York Daily News uh, has a, a Pew Research poll that um, they did, and 44% of Republicans believe that there's going to be an armed revolution in the country in the next few years. Mm-hmm. 18% of Democrats, 20%, mm-hmm. 7% of independents. Now, that's a huge chunk of the American population that believes we've got to use violence in order to mm-hmm. deal with uh, the, what they perceive to be coercion by the government. The thing is, with these Republicans, the 44 percent, and I'm willing to bet the farm on this, <laughs> over 90 percent of them would call themselves evangelical. Right. So you can't separate the issues of of. Um, ethics, or or the teachings of Jesus on nonviolence, love of enemy, retribution—you can't separate those things from these doctrines mm-hmm. that form the ideological basis
0: for this kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and that I, I wonder too. Um, in addition to what you were saying, Pete, about the the internet kind of opening up this discussion, I wonder if the current political climate is also. Um, I don't want to say inspiring, because that's a confusing term in the context of what we're talking about, but if that is kind of um, a catalyst to even more discussion about this, because we're seeing more practical outworking of evangelicalism, fundamentalism, these types of belief systems, we're seeing it collide, really, with our worldview. Um, Whereas I think in, in some ways, even though... Uh, and John, you and I both went to, to PCB. We, we talked a lot about our worldview there as to how our faith affected it. But it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, I, it seems to me that it was much more theoretical back then, that our, our, what we called our worldview just had to do with more like how we spread the gospel or how we talked about our faith, but not really the, the literal outworking of loving your enemy. You know that that type of concept has become such a hot topic now because we are involved in very real conflicts as a nation and as a people, and so um, I think that that is is
1: causing some more questions to be asked, perhaps about this. Well, I I, I get the sense, you know, speaking of our our, we're our foundation, mm-hmm. um, and that was an <laughs> which, which, which I'm, see which I'm thankful for. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for my my heritage sure um, but I felt like the discussions were discussions amongst uh, discussions in a box instead of beyond a box uh-huh. um, and I found that to be frustrating both as a student and as a professor yeah um, because for, for me the, the comment Michael made about issues of how we read not just what we read and mm-hmm. what, uh, our interpretation but how we read these texts that's what kind of got the lid off the box for me
6: mm-hmm.
1: was <clears throat> coming across the work of Eric Auerbach dealing with mimesis and mm-hmm. literature. Mm-hmm. And at that juncture, I wasn't even introduced to René Girard, yeah. even know Girard existed right. at that point. Now I understand the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, the, you know, the blowing out of the walls was really asking this question, how, how texts mean? Mm-hmm. Not just what they mean. Mm-hmm. and how do we how do we read a gospel without relying on another gospel
6: mm-hmm.
1: as literature?
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and those questions have been asked. I mean, they, Mark and scholars and gospel scholars have been dealing with this since you know the seventies, right. um, and it, it, it seems like we're always behind. Uh huh. Yes. Um, and it seems like when we when we finally catch up, air quotes. Um, <laughs> When we when we finally catch up and start talking about this stuff, it's it's kind of off limits. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I talk about story, my students would automatically say, "Oh, you're talking. You, you mean you mean the text is a myth?" Right. And I'm like, "No, that's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. That's not that wasn't part of the discussion." Mm-hmm. So um, I think so much talking inside the box mm-hmm. didn't give us an opportunity to see what was really happening in reality. Yeah.
0: You mentioned something about myth, and I, one of the things that I've been noticing in these discussions, too, uh, and when I say these discussions, I don't mean beyond the box. I mean the the larger discussion that's taking place in the world is a a need to uh, define or redefine terms that we're using because so many terms have baggage for us. You know, I mean, I grew up; the term myth meant oh, you denied that, that any of this ever happened and you denied that, that, that God exists. And, you know, if you start talking about something in the Bible being a myth, that was like, whoa, we don't want to go there because that's, you know, talk about slippery slope, you're just already at the bottom. Um, but I think as we begin to evaluate things in a more um, thought out way, we can begin to say, oh, well, when we say myth, we don't necessarily mean this over here we mean what the word actually means or whatever you know and so I, I think there's a necessity in the body of christ right now to begin to really define some of these terms um, we we throw out terms and one of the ones that i think really hampers evangelicalism is literal we read the bible literally and people go well just look at what the bible literally says well the bible literally says a lot of things that none of us believe mm-hmm. and yet we keep throwing that word out as literal like one of the examples <clears throat> I grew up in a, a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial mindset. And, of course, that was the only true way to believe at the time, you know. Um, when I started interacting with some of the popular writings on that topic, and namely Tim LaHaye, I would find that he would, was always saying, well, you have to read the book of Revelation literally. And then he gets to John 4, one, where John's called up into heaven, and he says, see, that's the rapture of the church. Hmm. Well, that's not literal. If it was John being called up, then literally it was John being called up, not the whole church. Mm-hmm. So immediately he begins with a non-literal reading of what he's saying he's taking literally. And I think at that point then the house of cards just begins to tumble because you have to say, well, okay, if you really don't mean
1: that, what do you mean by literal? And, and, and I think if push comes to shove, I think it's think backed into a corner. I think you'd have to say that that's a mythic... By, by reading Revelation 4-1 that way, that's a mythic reading of mm-hmm. that text. And mythic there doesn't mean unreal. Right. It, it's, a, it's another way to talk about reality. Mm-hmm. So whether you call it a myth or you say it's mythic, it's stories that are told within traditions where people are used to hearing stories told that way. Right. So you talk about Rome, you talk about dragons. Mm-hmm. Right? Not... Apache helicopters, or yes. I mean, you know, we're talking about <laughs> ships coming on the sea that may have a boat that has a dragon on the front of it.
6: Mm-hmm. And If
1: you see it coming in the horizon, it's coming out of the sea. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's, mythic. that's a great example. Or if yeah. Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm arises, and the disciples freak out, and Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea and uses the same terminology that he's used in the demoniac, well, to, mm-hmm. to be used in the demoniac episode, but was used in the pericope in Capernaum in chapter one. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sea is presented there as as demonic, right? And Jesus calms it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so these are these are mythically told stories. Right. That doesn't mean unreality.
5: If I could jump in here. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in that subculture that then became a culture that Michael spoke about and the whole nine yards, the you know total inerrancy of Old and New Testaments, mm-hmm. meaning that everything could be harmonized and reconciled right. and there was no different voices. It was one voice speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, for me just to start to have an education after I became an adult mm-hmm. and to read things like W. D. Davies, the you know, Introduction to the New Testament and how the Bible was put together. I mean these were things I didn't have any historical
6: mm-hmm.
5: background in right. my in my Christian education that I right. got in the conservative <clears throat> church. Mm-hmm. And I just was told to accept everything mm-hmm. and as a young adult, um, or as a teenager, when I asked some really hard questions, and one of them was, when we were studying Romans, and I got this this penal satisfaction interpretation of the atonement, and I was like, well, why was it fair for Jesus to have to die? You know, why would God do this to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, and... That people looked at me like I had two heads. Right. And I knew, uh-oh, oh, I better stop asking these kind of questions or I'm going to be out of here. Right. And they said, well, God can do what God wants.
6: Uh-huh. And it, it just card, so it?
5: did not satisfy me. Yeah. So when I when I began then this education process that was long before the Internet, and I do appreciate the information that you can get on the Internet these days, although there's a lot of bad information yes, there as well. Yes, exactly. Um, I was so relieved to see that I could still hold, which for me, the love and the prominence of the scriptures, but interpret them through Jesus.
6: Uh-huh. So
5: use the lens of Jesus for every interpretation. <clears throat> and what that did was it allowed me to really enjoy and embrace um. Uh, you know, the the first century um, Palestinian, uh, what was happening in the New Testament in the different books and taking, like some folks here have said, taking a book and seeing what was the background of that and who were these people that were being spoke to and who was doing the writing, what community Mm -hmm. wrote it. And to take that as a message and get Jesus out of that, and then we have four of those portraits Mm -hmm. in the New Testament, and to use those as my main basis and if something else somewhere else in the old testament or even the new testament didn't fit with that mm-hmm. wasn't the proper measuring stick or the canon
3: right which is what canon yes, means yes exactly thank you
5: then i was able to say oh okay well i'm going to just set that aside mm-hmm. i don't have to answer that question right now about what that text right. means and i'm going to focus on the clear Message of Jesus in those four Gospels, mm-hmm. and in some of the writings of Paul, um, especially you know a little bit later Paul.
6: Yeah, and
5: um, it, it just made it made the world so much easier for me, and it explained so many things that before I was uncomfortable with and didn't seem fair, and made God out to be an ogre, yeah. you know that I wouldn't that I wouldn't want to go and live with forever in right. eternity, and uh, so. Jesus, you know, for me, is the mm-hmm. full mm-hmm. and final revelation yes. of God, the Word of God.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: You know, this book is not the Word of God. right? Um, as it testifies to the Word mm-hmm. faithfully, then, then it's helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and even in the places where it doesn't, it's helpful to say, okay, this is how not to do religion, and this is how right. not to do our thoughts about God.
0: Exactly. I, I think what I'm hearing from this too is that there's, there's a real element of fear that seems mm-hmm. to go along with any kind of religion. Mm-hmm. And, and by religion, I'm obviously distinguishing that from what we know to be life in Christ. Life in Christ is not a religion. Christianity is a religion and it's a poor substitute for life in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an awful lot of fear which leads to the violence leads to the defensiveness, leads to the sense of looking at you like you have two heads when you ask a question. Because we're all apparently afraid of finding out the real truth, even though we think we already have the truth. And, you know, it's interesting because for, for years, atheists have been saying to Christians, if your faith is that true, why are you afraid of it being questioned? Shouldn't it stand up to scrutiny if it's true? And we always have just said, well, yeah, but we're not going to scrutinize it. <laughs> I mean, in effect, that's what we've done. we just punted. So, yeah, but it's, it's true. And, and you have to have faith, which is another trump card. You know, God can do what he wants to do, and you just have to have faith, which means you just don't question, which is not really the essence of faith. Faith is trusting in what you don't see, but it's not a lack of questioning. It's not a yeah. lack of asking. And by questioning, I, I mean being able to even ask the questions, just coming out with it. You know, it it seems to me that, uh, like, for example, you look through the Psalms that David wrote. He asks a lot of questions, a lot of hard questions. I don't see him getting rebuked for that. I don't see that becoming a problem. He was just wrestling through what he knew. And, you know, and we have this further revelation through Jesus that answers a lot of those questions. And yet we still have questions that we need to wrestle with. We, We still have questions we need to ask. And I like what you said about being okay kind of tabling those questions when we don't have the answer. If, it, if we can't see it through the lens of Jesus, then we need to be free to say, I don't have to have an answer for that one right now. But if we're answering it outside the lens of Jesus, and somehow our answer ends up contradicting Jesus, mm-hmm. we've got a huge mess on our hands. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that once you start with the doctrine of inspiration, which then led somehow to the doctrine of inerrancy, and people now think that the Bible itself proclaims inerrancy, that that's a derivative of inspiration, which the Bible doesn't even necessarily claim in the way that evangelicals say it does. You, once you get into inerrancy, now you're left with, okay, we can't question anything that this book says, various manuscripts and, and different textual readings be damned. We're just going to take it, face value, see what it really says. And every scripture becomes this flat organizational chart mm-hmm. that all has the same weight, all has the same value.
2: Thank but, God for Schofield and all those references. <laughs> Can I, can I say can I say two yeah two, 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 go for
1: it. Yeah, so two, so uh, just coming off of what you said, the <laughs> d- dovetail of what you said. You know we want our students to ask those questions right right and So that you can we, give we, them the answers? Right well well we, we want our students we, we want our students to ask those questions and we want to train them to ask those questions. But mm-hmm. well, why does the questioning have to stop? Why can't we as professors, that's good. And quote, air quotes again, yeah. scholars, <laughs> mm-hmm. why, why are we stopped mm-hmm. from asking the questions as though we've arrived scholastically, right. right? You know, we get the degrees, now we have the mm-hmm. answers. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a huge problem mm-hmm. in evangelicalism. Yeah. And the second thing is dovetailing mm-hmm. with what Laurie said. Um, I shared, a, shared this with my class this semester. We, we opened to uh, the beginning of the Gospel of John. And I read, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and I asked my students, what does that mean? And half of my students, the first thing that came out of out of their mouth was Jesus. And that that's fine. (laughs) And some of the students talked about the Bible. And so I tried to help my students understand that that these are not texts talking about the Bible being in the beginning, Mm
4: -hmm. but Jesus
1: being over the Bible and that he is not to be equated with the bible
4: mm-hmm.
1: and that and I told them in class I said my faith is not in the bible right it's in the person that the bible bears mm-hmm. witness to mm-hmm. right and for my students that that created a huge a tech t- it was a it was a shift Yeah, sure that they could not accommodate mm-hmm. both undergrad and grad students because we're so used to seeing Word of God that equals Bible, mm-hmm. instead of seeing the, the Bible as a, an interpretive commentary,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with I think I'm, I think I'm with Lori that the Gospels being central. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Pennington's new book on reading the Gospels wisely just he's spot on here that there is a canon within a canon,
0: mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. and
1: we we have to get away from this flat reading of the text, yeah. treating all texts equally.
0: Well, and you even said earlier we need to learn to read a gospel without depending on another gospel, right? right yeah. And you mean like reading Matthew without relying on what Mark Luke and John say? Um, I oh, I forget how long ago it's been. Ray and I got to listen to Bart Ehrman speak um, in uh, Banner Elk, North Carolina, at least McRae College, and uh, Bart said something in that that in that speech that really struck with stuck with me. He said, "We take the four gospels." And we mash them together and create a super gospel. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we all had synoptic gospel Mm -hmm. classes and stuff, you know. And and so we make this one story out of four very distinct different stories that, Michael, as you've pointed out, there are contradictions within.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, they tried that in the second century. Tatian tried it in Syria in the second Mm -hmm. century, and Mm -hmm. the church rejected that. Absolutely.
0: Interesting. So
2: You know, there's. I want to hitchhike here on a couple of things. One is I didn't know Peter or his work until we started this... Conversation to do this thing, so I Googled his name like you do everybody, oh. you know. And of course, when you Google Peter, ends what comes up: heretic, 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 heretic. <laughs> no, just kidding. So, so I'm, I'm looking. I'll, I get a dollar for each other.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and five bucks for each Google search. I'm Google, Google Adwords. To that, so. <laughs> so, so, so the, so the thing it. is, I'm looking at
2: these blog posts, and of course, the comments, and, and Peter's taken a major hit. Yeah. Um, uh, because he's insisting that you have to pay attention to the, the notion of genre. Right. Okay. So I want to come back first to myth, and then I have something I want to throw in the pot here. Mm-hmm. One is um, Jesus' passion narrative, according to René Girard, is structured mm-hmm. identically to that of originary myths. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we have to do is we have to redefine the category of myth. We can't mm-hmm. use the old 19th, uh, early 20th century definitions that were used by um, a German critical scholarship of people like Wilhelm Busset and Rudolf Bultmann uh, which have kind of carried into uh, this country because of the influence of folks like Helmut Kester and Bart Ehrman and others right. A myth in in that definition is a story that tries to explain the un, the scientific and unscientific fashion. That's essentially what myths are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So thunder and lightning, oh the gods must be angry Right um, myths in that sense we say are false.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Girard argues that in fact myths are false, but they're false not in what they're trying to ex- to explain in, uh, non-scientifically. They're false in that they're covering up something. They're hiding something. Mm. And what is it they're hiding? They're hiding the fact that behind these Stories And myths are stories of origin. Mm -hmm. This is really important. Mm -hmm. They're not just explanatory, fun things. They're stories of where we came from. Cultures tell myths. It's the way they tell their story. Mm -hmm. So they're stories of origin. So when we talk about creation myths or founding myths, Mm -hmm. well, these stories have victims behind them, real victims. Mm -hmm. In the beginning was the victim. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, as Andrew McKenna puts it, was the weapon. And what myths do, myths are the way we humans talk about <coughs> social construction, the way we, we, be, we become human community, by transferring our hostility on a random victim and covering up that victim. We cover it. We literally cover it up in terms of um, uh, graves, but we cover them up textually as well, mm-hmm. and orally when we tell our stories. So we, do, we engage in this deceptive process. Myths in that sense are deceptive. Well, the gospel passion narratives are the exact same structure. They Mm -hmm. reveal what the myths conceal. They reveal that behind um, mob violence is an innocent victim. Mm -hmm. But unlike myths, the Gospels expose it. Jesus is vindicated in the (coughs) Mm resurrection. And this is precisely the early preaching of the book of Acts. This one whom you killed, God is raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. There's no atonement theory in all this early preaching. It's all anti-mythical Preaching—it's the—it's the, it's the um, structural reversal of the way we do this project called human community. Mm-hmm. So that's the the first piece. Throw of a revelation me. into that too. Yeah,
3: the, the slain lamb on the throne. That's right. right. Anti-civil religion, anti-Roman rhetoric. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's, uh-huh. exactly, yeah, that's exactly. exactly. Yeah. Babylon as a system, not right. as a literal right. city. Right. Yeah. So then, the second thing I
2: put in is that when you believe in the Bible first, when you put your faith in the Bible, you fundamentally become a second century Gnostic, because mm-hmm. at that point, faith becomes knowledge. <laughs> and there's a great book by uh, Philip Lee called Against the Protestant Gnostics, and he is able mm-hmm. to demonstrate, for my money, that in America, both. Um, conservative evangelicalism, fundamentalism, and liberalism Mm
6: -hmm.
2: have identical Mm -hmm. sets of presuppositions that they battle over, and those presuppositions are identical to 2nd century Gnosticism. (laughs) So what you really have in the fundamentalist-modernist divide are two groups arguing who's the true Gnostic. (laughs) And that's the real issue for me with evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. with fundamentalism, with liberalism Mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. The way it's expressed is that it's all about right knowing, mm-hmm. rather than pistis as trust. Pistis meaning we translate it as faith. Right, um, and I mean then you get into the debates: is is it faith in or is it faith of? Uh-huh. You know, pistis qua, pistis qua You get it. so evangelicals. What's happening now today? To come back to your initial topic, is they're beginning to recognize. You know what? This way of thinking that we've been we've been suckered into, mm-hmm. seduced into. Mm-hmm. Isn't real oppressed. Oppressed. It isn't yeah. real. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something good. And we don't want to throw the Bible out. We don't want to throw Jesus out. Right. Sure. Don't want to throw the doctrine of the Trinity out. Don't want to throw the church out. But we have to find a way to be able to articulate these great themes now mm-hmm. in terms of evangel.
3: Good. Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so, the difficulty so. is is in um, how bound up this is, though, in in social and political structures, which yeah. is the persistent problem in the history of the church. Right. we right. equate those yeah. two things, yeah. so you know, to, to do what you're suggesting, which you know, I agree with, that is, um, mm-hmm. you're you're taking away um, a sense of stability and comfort. Which is not just a theological comfort; it's actually a life narrative kind of comfort, which we find in in political structures or social structures and things like that. So I'm that's just is a big Pete, deal Isn't here. that what Jesus did? It, that, that's <laughs> the point, though. You see, that's exactly the point. <laughs> right. and, uh, and how do you live that way? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's 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 a that, that's a pressing question for people who I think are sensing this isn't working here. Right. where do I go from this Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's the kind of if there's something that's different today than maybe 30, 40 years ago in this whole mm-hmm. evangelical experiment because that's what it is Yes. Um, I think that's more the question that I'm hearing from people, I, I need to get out of here where do I go
6: and
0: um, unfortunately a lot of people then are presented with the black and white, you're either a Christian or you're not, you're, you either have faith or you don't and mm-hmm. I think what we're all coming together and saying is you can still have faith but it may look different, it may feel different, and it's certainly going to challenge a lot of your presuppositions of what you thought faith was to begin with. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. going, and it's going to sound different. It's going to sound different, mm-hmm. and it's certainly going to play out differently in your culture
2: and your relationships. Yeah, exactly. The way you mm-hmm. live with your spouse, your kids, your uh-huh. friends. Uh-huh. Play, the, mm-hmm. the, uh huh. An approach to Jesus that is oriented toward a non retributive <clears throat> model yeah. works itself out in relationships really differently than the patriarchal penal model of the reformed theology. My
0: my journey in this in asking all these questions really began in earnest when I became a dad. Because at that point I suddenly had a real life experience of what it was to be a father and that gave me a lot more insight into what my father heavenly father should must be. And you know, and we've said this on the podcast before. I don't know if you guys have heard us say this, but when Jesus was telling people how to understand their father, he said, "Look at yourself as fathers. Look at how you would treat your kids. If they came and asked you for bread, would you give them a stone? If they asked for fish, would you give them a serpent? No, you wouldn't do that. I mean, it's a no-brainer. And the and the assumption is that you're not <coughs> going to do that. Otherwise, we've got a whole other discussion to have. And he says, if you and he. Mm-hmm. I think hyperbolically says being evil yes. know how to treat your kids right how much, much more, more. Mm-hmm. so when we come along and we say God's different from us Jesus says no God's not different he's better yes he is what you are but way better mm-hmm. in terms of how he views people how he treats people so the, and the whole Isaiah 55 you know my ways are higher than your it's all about mercy it's yes. not about oh I have the right to do what it, you know God's going to do what God's going to do and you just need to deal with it He's going to torture people in hell for eternity because, well, he's God, even though we would never do that to somebody else. But no, God says, "You, if you wouldn't do that well, to we else... Well, we would, actually.
3: No, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, really. I mean, I think that is a tendency. Well, yeah, okay. I, I know what you mean. Uh,
0: yeah. But I, but I think if, certainly if we were trying to be loving towards someone, we would not want to torture. Like, I would never want to torture my son because he didn't listen to me or because mm-hmm. he didn't love me. But... We somehow turn it around oh, and we shoot say, I gotta scratch that method of discipline off. Oh but we say, Well, God's different, so he because he's just, mm-hmm. he has the right to do this and it's all good somehow. And we end up just redefining the terms. Oh, yeah. But what Jesus is saying is, No, God's not good in a different way than you're good. He's good in a much better way than you're good. I would argue a logarithmically better way.
2: Yes. Because it's it's not just it's not just a straight analogue. It's a in that kind of that early Bart sense in a wholly other different way. He's Mm -hmm. so much better. Yeah, you you can't even conceive of what betterness is. Right. I know you've had something you want to throw in here
4: for a while, John. Yeah, Jonathan Souter here. The (laughs) the question that I I want to ask when people talk about God being wholly other is: Are they talking about God being quote beyond good and evil uh, in Augustine's sense, in which Augustine said that? To uh, understand who God really is, you have to um, become accustomed to the screaming of so many tiny babies, mm-hmm. and uh, all our ideas of justice are just uh, right. basically sand in the wind, and you know, God's beyond all of that. Or is he or she, is, is God wholly other, <clears throat> in that uh, she is uh, unfounding the world that we have founded in violence through forgiveness, as, as I understand the New Testament uh, God is here to unfound the world mm-hmm. not to ruin it but for those of us invested in the way we are currently abusing the world uh, feels like God is here to destroy it so there's no other terminology mm-hmm. than apocalyptic terminology that's appropriate great. to uh, what God is doing in the world through Jesus mm-hmm. uh, the forgiveness is the unfounding of the world as we know it Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to
6: uh,
4: echo a few of the ideas here that people have used uh, one of them, I think, is that evangelicalism, from the time it was a subculture to into uh, trying to make an inroads into popular culture, um, has basically been a psycho-epistemological security system. Huh. Okay, So what you know saves you. <clears throat> and that, that is Gnosticism. Right. And so this is why, as Peter was saying, it's not okay simply to entertain some of these new ideas until we know where are we are going to land. I'm not going to jump until I know where
1: I'm going to land. That's a great point right there. And uh, for
4: me it's been very helpful to read uh, Jacques Loul, for example, among many others mm-hmm. in trying to save us from the conflation that we make between faith and belief. Mm-hmm. I hope that I will have faith until the day I die. Faith itself is a gift so there's no guarantee of that. But my faith includes doubt and I think Jesus did as well. But beliefs are our uh, ways of saying things that we've currently come to say. This is how we understand the world, and those change over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether Jesus' beliefs about God's relationship to Gentiles changed after his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, mm. I don't know. But I think that faith and belief are obviously uh, connected at a deep level. But they are not one and the same. And so conflating them, I think, feeds into this problem that. Mm-hmm. Um, that John Olaf here talked about, where we read the Bible flat. And uh, as, as an old, I'm postmodernist enough to, to say that I've always been a plagiarist. I, I don't believe anyone uh, <laughs> um, it, it does any thinking without using thinking they've gotten from other people. I just a few terms here. I uh, plagiarized D. Mark Lewis, who's Left Behind and Loving It, a cheeky, cheeky look at the end times. He talks about the great threat in America today of the uh, homotextual agenda. And he says that we all ought to be part of the struggle against textual perversion, Um, that textual perversion takes place when this homotextual homotextual agenda um, makes inroads into our lives and into our churches, and basically homotextuality is simply to read texts as the same, Mm -hmm. all texts as the same. And so those are just a few echoes I have of, of themes I've, I've really resonated with here so far. I, I like that homotextual agenda. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, that's but, in the chapter before Pulp, fiction, living through the great figuration.
1: Yeah, and you know, just to give an, an illustration of this, I, when I was presenting my, uh, my dissertation um, uh, topic, um, a former, former colleague came right back at me, well, what about Matthew? You know what about Luke
6: mm-hmm.
1: because the work I'm doing is marking. marking. Mm-hmm. and I I'm, in, I'm intentionally not looking at the other the other gospels that's not I mean, I'm just keeping them off limits so you know right away you've got to read these whatever the text is doing here this author has to be doing the same therefore you' the question you're even raising you can't even ask that question because of what Matthew will agree and it's worse with Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what I'm. You know, yeah. what I'm doing is OTNT stuff through right. the intertestamental period. So mm-hmm. certainly Mark and Matthew and John and Luke can't. They can't disagree on anything. Of course, yes. Right. And that yeah. that's that's hogwash. And
0: and a lot of that again comes back to the theory of inspiration. It, it's. I mean, it, the, the logical prog- progression makes sense if all Scripture is inspired by God in the sense that God dictated what it says, then we would assume it would be inerrant, and we would assume that it would all uh, agree with each other. So... I think we're kind of forced to look at Paul's statement about inspiration and say, what does that really mean? Michael, you and I have just participated in a conversation about this online on Facebook with a gentleman who was like, well, no, it's, it's all inspired, and you guys just don't believe it's inspired, so you must not believe anything, and, but it, it's, I mean, and, and here's the problem. I'm going to go off on my own tangent. Here's the problem, I think, and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Christians by and large do not know their history. They don't know their own heritage. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about issues of canonicity. Mm-hmm. Very who's few, canon? Yeah, mm-hmm. who's canon? Very few Christians know that there was ever a debate about that. Mm-hmm. Very few Protestants know that the 66 books we ended up with are largely the work of Martin Luther's reduction of the Catholic canon, mm-hmm. which included the Apocrypha. And that doesn't include his reduction even further. And we're here. He. Yes, yeah. right. he right. right. to the end, he wanted to leave them out yeah. altogether for a while. <clears throat> yeah,
5: we saw an early... Uh, copy of one of the first King James Bibles that was printed mm-hmm. and it had the full apocrypha. Had the full apocrypha, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and yet those men, of course, were inspired by God to translate it the way they did, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if we even begin to to uh, educate Christians with regard to history, I think some of this is going to start mm-hmm. to bubble up to the surface. Mm-hmm. So let's let's deconstruct this for a second. Um,
2: 2 Timothy 3.16 mm-hmm. in the popular translations virtually every translation translates pasagrafe thet as all scripture, all scripture is inspired mm-hmm. first of all if the writer wanted to say all scripture is inspired he would have used an article he pasagrafe or pasigraphe. Mm-hmm. and he doesn't it's, it's an arthris which is why you can translate that as every scripture which is inspired by God, right. first of all. That's the first thing. It's not a set in stone, mm-hmm. the Bible says all scripture. Right. Second, the writer could only be referring to the Jewish scriptures, exactly. not the New Testament, because there is no New Testament at that time. Right. And in, what,
1: in what Jewish scriptures? Septuagint? In what, or? In what, well, that's, well yeah. that's, that's the next that's question. That's the next question, yeah.
2: Because the writer does cite the Septuagint like mm-hmm. most of the New Testament right. writers. <clears throat> is it the Greek New Testament or Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures? Well... The Greek church has argued that it's the Septuagint that's inspired, where the Western church wants to argue it's the Hebrew Scriptures. And then fourth, just two verses prior to that text, he talks about two opponents of Moses, Janus and Jambres. Mm-hmm. Those are, those figures are not mentioned in the Jewish Scriptures, but their names are given in the Targums, the paraphrases <laughs> right. that are in the synagogue. So are the Targums inspired? I mean, it, this... Notion, all scriptures, it begs a million
0: questions. And these are the questions that are currently deconstructing evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But those questions are generally not even allowed to be asked, let alone dealt with. So, like, I grew up believing all scripture, the 66 books of the canon, was inspired by God, and there was no question about that. There was no instruction about the, you know, I mean, I didn't even know what the Septuagint was. Like, what's this LXX, you know, what does that mean in the footnotes and all this it's stuff? It's a new band, baby. It's a new band, yeah, rock band. <laughs> Please so, don't edit that out. <laughs> and and so, you know, when I started to, to understand that history, and so, okay, so we had Hebrew texts that were translated into Greek. That's what Jesus and the, the writers of the New Testament often referred to. And that translation into Greek, the Septuagint, Made some significant alterations to what we now know the Hebrew to say thousands. So yeah, so like, what does that mean for inspiration? And and so, well, uh, unfortunately, what happens and John? You and I both came out of this this camp. We say, oh, they were inspired in the original autograph. Right. Oh, that's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and it means nothing. It means nothing because we don't have the original autograph. So why do we punt back to that and then somehow try to apply it to our translation? Well, not only do we punt back to that, but then we get those who say, but we can, in fact,
2: get ninety nine point nine 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 percent with the Texas Receptus as the original you know, it's, it's it really is there. So they, they're trying to put both ends of the field
6: right. at
3: the same time. And then you introduce them to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. And they're oh, more complicated. Oh, right. Schools. Yeah. So right. So
5: well, yeah. what's been very helpful so, to and me? And all
3: points inspired. Yeah. Yes. What
5: what helped to Some get me through, through this everybody. kind mm-hmm. of morass of questioning is uh, somebody stating that whether we have a high view of a text or a low view of a text, which in my opinion are both misnomers. Yes begin with, but whether we do or not, what matters is how we interpret the text. Mm -hmm. And if you have Jesus on the road to Emmaus, uh, with two of his disciples who Mm -hmm. don't recognize him, Mm -hmm. having to go through this process with them of interpreting their text to them correctly, because they were all over the place arguing about what does this mean, what does that mean, and you know, and he has to come and, and instruct them, and he continues to do that while he is here before he ascends to heaven. That's kind of his ma- one of his major things that he's doing with people. Mm-hmm. You know, if, so if Jesus has to interpret the text for them in light of himself
6: mm-hmm.
5: so, that, so that they know what these things mean about him, mm-hmm. then that's the whole point for me now.
0: Right. And that's
5: why I said before, everything I have to interpret yes. through the lens of Jesus, and I don't even need to, I mean, it's helpful to know some of these things about where a certain texts came from right. and what, what eras they were written in and what people were meaning, what was happening culturally. Yes, that is very helpful, especially mm-hmm. for the more obscure texts. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: But let me throw this question at you, Lori. The fundamentalist evangelical tradition you grew up in would say they interpret everything through the lens of Jesus, too. Jesus is the center. Mm-hmm. They would say that.
5: And Mm, so the question...
2: I don't think they would. They do. They do. mean, currently. Back then,
5: it would have never entered our minds. Okay.
2: Well, they said We were just
5: interpreting the text literally, which meant we are interpreting the way somebody before us, Mr. X, and we don't even know who that is, interpreted this text to mean this, and so therefore that's what it means and we don't question it.
2: Well, I'm saying the (laughs) fundamentalist and conservative evangelicals would say they're interpreting their text Christocentrically. Okay. So... How would you respond to them? So, does it matter which Jesus? Does it matter? Do, do you have a, a center a, 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 for your hermeneutic? You know, do, you, do you, What do you? What do you respond to that?
5: I guess um, a couple summers ago, I had a, a very extensive conversation with a with a strict fundamentalist that went for several hours, and this did come up, but where she kept referring. Uh, about, well, God this, and God that, and God said this, and God said that. I would bring her back to, but Jesus says this, and there was a definite contrast between her interpretation of God and Mm -hmm. the way things were supposed to be, and where I kept bringing her back to the New Testament text Mm -hmm. and what Jesus actually said.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, mean, just one example. You have Jesus saying, um, God makes rain to fall on good and evil, sun to shine on just and unjust. Now, the Calvinists read this as common grace. Yes. That's common grace. Mm-hmm. That's the paradigm they put it in. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would read it as Jesus critiquing the method of interpretation in the book of Deuteronomy, yes. the Deuteronomic Hermeneutic, no, 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 no. where if mm-hmm. you do the right thing, you're blessed, you do the yes. wrong thing, you're cursed. Mm-hmm. So,
0: Absolutely. You would too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think you hit on something, Michael, there that I, I think is central to this journey of, of, you know, how do we read the scripture? And that's looking at how Jesus himself interpreted the law. You know, I mean, it, when Jesus says, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but when Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, mm-hmm. he's quoting the law. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, you heard that God inspired this statement, or "You or God said to you, an eye for an eye. You've heard it said like it was a rumor, or like it was some... You know, whisper down the lane kind of thing, and then he turns it on its ear and says, but I say to you, and by most evangelical standards today, that would mean Jesus was a heretic because he was defi- defying the written word, in a sense. He, was, he wasn't he was interpreting, you know, they would say, well, we got to interpret this through scripture, mm-hmm. and scripture
3: says an eye for an eye, so therefore, he must be wrong. I mean, part of the, I think, challenge for today is, you know, we have a book called the Bible that has, you know, all these chapters that are lined up next to it. And, of course, right. they didn't have that back then. No, those but, aren't inspired um, either? You know, what I try to encourage <laughs> even in seminary students to think about is how the Old Testament is Israel's story. Uh-huh. It's Israel's self-definition. It's a post-exilic self-definition Yes, Israel is as a people of God yes.
1: mm-hmm.
3: this is our past it's yes. actually Judah's story yes mm-hmm. yes. the Northern kingdoms out mm-hmm. of the picture it's a right, great story, yes. how they yeah. were, the story. that's a great mm-hmm. point. and it's it's um it's it's a wonderfully valuable story to Absolutely. understand where they came from but when you get to the Jesus story it you have this dynamic of continuity and discontinuity between them that's what's sometimes lost in Having a book that we open up like this, we sort right. of well, God wrote it. Got all like any good yes. author, you know. You have sort of this and <laughs> the and you miss that. What you're saying, you miss that critique dimension where, mm-hmm. where Jesus is both very Jewish. He's not a Christian. He's very Jewish. Mm-hmm. He's not an evangelical. He's very Jewish. <laughs> Damn. But he also has <laughs> um, you know, enough uh, uh, enough to critique of I think not simply the Judaism of his day, but also the tribalistic system that we see. Right. Right. And the, the textual Testament. tradition, the sacred textual yes. tradition. Yeah, yeah. he has... He has uh, Jesus is bigger than the Bible. Right. And, and then when you get to... I mean, Paul, who takes that, I think, to a, a different level where, you know, all these boundary markers of, of mm-hmm. Judaism, which are even commanded in the Old Testament, whether it's what you eat, and mm-hmm. Gentiles are circumcised to be full members of the kingdom of heaven, and all these things are... They're, they're, we, we don't do that anymore right. because now he's not dead anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that, mm-hmm. we, we lose that, that incredible dynamic when we flatten out As a, I mean, it's <coughs> yeah. a worn term, but it's true when we flatten out yeah, the sure. text as um, we need continuity the way we understand literary continuity mm-hmm. and we actually miss how the New Testament is really, I mean, I put it this way, the New Testament is really a commentary on Almost, what do we, how do we understand Israel's story now? That's you know? right. Mm-hmm. In light of the fact that something wholly unexpected mm-hmm. has happened. Yes, yes, right. yes because I, it was what not what is Israel is was to, expecting their story to play out to be. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I, and, and that's, that's, that's a resistance <laughs> that I have. I mean, I, I, I yeah. talk with a lot of you yeah. know, friends of mine who are, you know, within, let's say, a moderate evangelical, not not a hard right, but more moderate, yeah. saying yeah. that. This has to have been anticipated. Mm-hmm. Paul is trying to wrap his head around this stuff. Romans right. right. And Galatians <laughs> like, wait a minute. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. This, this, this doesn't make... Well, how? The, Why? <laughs> He's yeah. not supposed to die. He's oh. supposed to win. He's supposed exactly. to kill people. Exactly. He's supposed to take over the land. We're supposed to have the glory days of David come back. And this is... And then rising from the dead. I mean, this is where Tom Wright, I think, is very helpful... The resurrection of the dead of the faithful Jews is an end thing. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to happen now to one. It's supposed to happen to them all later. Uh And and I I can't imagine the the stress and the pressure points of having to put these pieces together. Right. Right. And you actually, I think, have a low view of scripture if you don't allow those tensions to remain. That's right. that's and right. Exactly. And it, so, that's,
0: that's unfortunately that's, in the debates that rage yeah. on the internet, so yeah. often as soon as you begin to ask these questions, people go, oh, well, you don't have a high view of scripture. Yeah. And I'm going, wow, yeah. I respect this book so much. Mm-hmm. But... If by high view you mean I think it's the fourth person in the Trinity, no, mm-hmm. I don't believe that at all. There's actually a, a book with that title,
2: "High View of Scripture." Question mark. I think the author's name is Allert, and he yes. argues that um, Craig Allert, yeah, Craig that in fact, if you buy into and see those things, you actually have a low view of Scripture. Yes, right. You made the most crucial point, I think, and that's that when we read the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, our tendency is to read them uh, as evangelicals off as pure history. Mm-hmm. And they're not. They are. They're exilic, post-exilic mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. They're interpretive. That, that, that's right. Yes. That that need to be read through the prophetic paradigm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All that history. That's mm-hmm. even, we would call history. I would call most of it pseudo-history. Um, not history as fact or raw data. Theological. Right. Theological history. Theological history, history whatever. The yeah. yeah use, sure. Yeah. 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 But it's not. It's not. Like it's. It's not somehow as though it actually happened written this way. All of that is key because Jesus reads those texts through that prophetic lens. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. And and then the second point you made, this will pertain to Jonathan, is that did you know that dispensationalism is in the Bible? Peter was the first dispensationalist, uh-huh. and John can tell you how that works out okay. with Antioch. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you mean chapter ten? I mean, uh, well, that, <clears throat> I... Well, First of all, I, I, I follow the hunches of, of Doug Campbell and, uh, and J. William hmm. Martin, who, who suspect that Paul lost the game historically, and then certainly with evangelicalism, he lost today theologically. <laughs> I think it's Kaseman that says that Paul uh, practiced in writing letters like uh, Galatians the <clears throat> discernment of the spirit of the texts, that he... Inculcated uh, in his in his congregations that they should practice the discernment of the spirit of the speakers in their congregations. Uh, Paul can find both uh, gospel and ungospel in a book like Leviticus. Um, Paul in <laughs> Galatians gives uh, the two parts of a syllogism. The logical third part would be that uh, the law was uh, ordained by angels in the absence of God. Paul's not out to score a lot of points and really upset people, so he never finishes the syllogism. <laughs> he lays out the logic very clearly that uh, Moses, a mediator, is not a mediator of one. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, if it obviously then the third part would be that if the law had come from God, uh, we wouldn't need Moses to, to mediate. So the the angels uh, ordained it. But at Antioch, I think uh, Peter is arguing uh, very logically within the bounds of what he thinks is where, where we have to stay, that um, God is simply saying that um, at this time and at this place, for reasons of evangelism, uh, you can break kosher. And in the, this is a special dispensation of God who, as we all know, lives in Leviticus and, and doesn't eat pigs but God is giving a special dispensation in a papal sense for a certain evangelical exception. If these are the people you're trying to bring into uh, the true um, Jewish uh, faith, the the only connection with God, which is Judaism, but thanks to Jesus, we can now and then, as he and his disciples did, break kosher for evangelical purposes. At the end of the day, though, um, we eventually are going to have to come back to kosher and he demonstrates that he believes this because when they show up from Jerusalem the pillars, the the big people uh, then he changes tables in the cafeteria and Paul tells him at this point, Peter this is not just unkind or inconsiderate uh, to your new proselytes this is a demonstration that you don't believe that anything really changed with the revelation of God and Jesus (laughs) (laughs) so what what I think we have to do uh, in the days since Martin Luther King Jr. is is listen to him say that we have to choose now between nonviolence and non-existence. And mm. when we say well, there, there's a time and a place for God to be uh, nonviolent, um, but uh, and, and and for for reasons of you know the day of grace is still here and we need to welcome more people in, um, we we come up with this dispensation uh, thing mm. and. So even for historically nonviolent churches like the Mennonites, they still think about God in dispensational terms. Mm. And they're eagerly looking for the day when Jesus' evil twin will return. Right, <laughs> right? and actually reestablish godness again. But right now we're in Interesting, this kind of yeah. exception.
0: And, and I mm-hmm. I think that is that's a, a great commentary on what we're seeing in our culture even outside the Mennonites. The the evangelicalism as a whole seems to have this view that yeah, we're supposed to love our enemy, but God's eventually going to kick their ass Well, this
2: is the problem with Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace. And I do believe that Volf has moved past this in his uh, later stuff now. Mm. But Exclusion and Embrace is his award-winning book, and everybody reads it, you know, that wants to be theologically literate. Because in that book, <laughs> he talks it. about the eschatological deferral of violence. We follow Jesus now. We're nonviolent now because in the end we know that God's going to beat the daylights and put right. people into hell. Mm-hmm. So I can feel comfortable if you're my enemy and you're hurting me, mm-hmm. I can take comfort in the fact that one day you're going to get your comeuppance from God. Mm-hmm. And that that uh, is precisely what John's talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that God is not self-consistent in God's self. God is neither self-consistent in God's self with Jesus, Mm -hmm. nor is God consistent in God's self over over time. We've broken up Mm -hmm. God's attributes so that now we're in a period of grace, and then we'll be... Mm -hmm. It becomes absurd theology at this point. And even my friend Willard Swartley, who's a Mennonite thinker, can't seem to get away from this. And Mm -hmm. so many theologians I know are just terrified of what happens if you remove retribution from eschatology. Just right. like what happens if you remove it from atonement. Just right. like what happens if you remove it from ethics. We mm-hmm. will, well, the world we live in will collapse. Well, hallelujah, that's <laughs> yeah, the point of the coming kingdom of God. <laughs> That's the point of eschatology. That's the, the point of apocalyptic yeah. as a category. The end of the world as we know it. It's yeah. the end of the and I feel fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
5: and, and as the plain ladies um, that we have a study with, said when we, t- when we finally got this, aha, God is not violent, God is not retributive, God is love, God is light. And this po- all of a sudden one of them popped up and said, this means I can't spank my children. Wow. Which they've been taught to do. Uh-huh. So there you have it.
0: See, and, and that's the beauty of these conversations is that as more and more people catch a glimpse of this, it begins to affect in a positive way, everyday life. Yes. One of the problems that I had with how I was brought up theologically is that everything was reserved for the next life. Mm-hmm. This life really didn't matter. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to worry about uh, taking care of the earth because well, it's all going to be destroyed anyway. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to really worry about loving each other because God's going to get them in the end. you know. And it, So everything was all about the next life. And somebody asked me the other day uh, on Facebook... Well, okay, you guys talk about hell, and, and a lot of us have come to the conclusion that eternal conscious torment in hell is not what the Bible actually teaches, what Jesus actually taught. And so they say, but what about heaven? Okay, if you, if you think that hell's just kind of you know not really a, a real place, what about heaven? And I said, you know, I, I'm not really sure what I think about that, but I will say this. I think it's a whole lot more about the kingdom coming to earth than it is us escaping to something mm-hmm. else. There's, and so when you start to look at life in the kingdom as something that affects us now, it's going to change the way that we, we said this earlier, it changes your relationships, it changes how you parent, it changes how you view your enemies politically, how you view your enemies elsewhere in the world, your physical enemies, you know, someone has it out for you physically It's going to change how you react to them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you see the kingdom as impacting life now, not being something separate. And that was one of the the biggest frustrations for me with dispensationalism when I was in that system, is that everything was future. Nothing mattered now. There is
1: no kingdom now. Right. If you're you're a true dispensationalist.
0: And yet, what did Jesus say? The kingdom is within. He says it's with men. I mean, he said the kingdom of heaven is here. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. And so... And why bother praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if what happens on earth doesn't matter?
6: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So the, the, I, I love that story about what you just shared of her, of her realizing how that affected her parenting. Mm-hmm. Because it's the same for me. It, it totally has changed how mm-hmm. I view my son and my daughter, how yeah. I view my wife, how I view everybody.
5: Well, I've said this before, and from having community experience, you know, living together with other Christians you know, who are not your family... It is so much easier when something goes wrong when someone hurts somebody within the community to make a law Mm, okay mm. now we're never going to do this again okay now men and women can no longer be in the same room you know with each other on Mm -hmm. chaperone that's just an example right so instead of the law of love where Mm -hmm. we struggle Mm -hmm. together to reunite and restore relationships, mm-hmm. to make amends for the hurt that we've done, mm-hmm. uh, to to find this third way mm-hmm. of living, we take the easy way out. Oh, we've got a new law now to cover that, so that will right. never happen again.
0: And now we just obey that law. We don't have to actually love exactly. somebody. We just follow those rules.
5: Exactly. And I,
0: yeah, I think that's the the whole problem that we see play out in the Old Testament, because even even if you believe, as most evangelicals would say that God dictated that entire law to Moses and that that was what he asked for, even if you believe that, you've got to wrestle with the fact that God comes along later and says, I can't stand your sacrifices. I I hate this. I hate the smell of it. I hate what you guys are going through in your pageantry. It's not what... And David even caught a glimpse of that. He said, if you desired sacrifice, I'd give it. Well, according to the law, God did. He committed adultery. He was supposed to atone for that. So David somehow... Caught a glimpse of that prophetically in saying, What you really want is a changed heart. What you really want is for me to be broken inside. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I think one of the things here that becomes important now is to reckon with this. The um, understanding that Christians have of law mm-hmm. um, isn't necessarily shared by any number of the proto rabbis of Jesus' day or even the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the interesting things about Judaism, uh, particularly post-Second Temple Judaism, is in the literature that's produced, uh, uh, well, it would be after our New Testament, but certainly reflecting traditions from that era, is that um, the rabbis had no problem in the Mishnah or the Sefta or the Talmud, even in the Midrashim, the, the Midrash writings, mm-hmm. of including contradictory arguments. Hmm. Rabbi A says this, but Rabbi B says that. That is, the the rabbis aren't aren't hmm. looking to make the text all of the, the this thing that, that we call canon. That can, they're not looking to harmonize <clears throat> it and make every They're working at it, they're saying, we've got all these issues and we've got to figure out how this all plays out together, but they're not looking to do what evangelicals do. And so in that sense, the way the Jews read their own text after the the collapse of the Second Temple was much more faithful to the text itself than the way somebody like a Justin Martyr would come along and form a theory of canon. Mm-hmm. which has influenced Irenaeus, which influenced Augustine, which influences the Reformers. which infl- I mean, we're stuck in this sense. Evangelicals and Christianity mm-hmm. literally stuck with the questions of the second century mm-hmm. that we answered wrong back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Marcion's question got answered wrong uh-huh. uh, by Justin Martyr and, 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 and Tertullian and others. Um, the the greatest, in fact, I would argue the greatest figure in the 2nd century is Marcion. He asks the right question. He mm-hmm. himself comes up with the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. But then so do the so-called
0: uh, post-apostolic writers and the apologists. For the benefit of some of our listeners who yeah. may not know... The marcion question. You want to just summarize that real quickly for us? What
2: does the gracious God of the New Testament mm-hmm. have to do with the retributive God of the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. That's marcion's question in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And he asks, and so he throws out the Old Testament altogether. Says right. that's, that's made by an inferior God. There are really a number of gods, and the real God, the true Spirit God, who doesn't have anything to do with the material world of blood and sweat and semen and these things. Uh, that's that's the demiurge. The Kind of the the god the god who's not really super god <laughs> the super god is spirit you know yeah but Marcion buys into that world well so do the early fathers when they try to say no 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 they're exactly the same god and then what you end up with you end up with a god that's got now two faces right the <laughs> I call it Janus face Janus. god right. Mm-hmm. And that's the God of Christendom. That's the God of sacrificial Christianity, as Gerard would put it. That's the God that we preach as good news. And in fact, that God is a horrid God. That's the God of archaic religion. That's the God of yeah. cannibalism, human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. that's not the God and Father of Jesus. Right.
0: Yeah. When Jesus said that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, we have to take that seriously. And I think a lot of times what we end up doing is we say, well, he showed us the softer, gentler side of God. And yet, we still try to m- match it with the Old Testament accounts, and I, I think, Pete, what did you call
3: it? You said that the Old Testament was the self. Um, it's it's Israel's, I guess, um, self uh, declaration of who. They are self-definition yeah. of who they are as, and I, th- people I think that's a, a great that
0: term time. to put on it because that kind of yeah. it, it hits at the very foundation of the whole inspiration problem. Well, right, because if if it's inspired text by God, then it's God's definition of Israel's history. Mm-hmm. But if it's Israel and Israel's post-exilic writers reflecting on their own history, mm-hmm. then we can see it in a whole different light. Well, and their own, know, own encounter
3: if, with with God and too, their own understanding of God, you know, yeah. Um, and that doesn't take away, I mean, what, you know, why is there such a great distance between, so to speak, right. between the things Jesus says and the things we see in the Old Testament? That's a whole other kind of question. But, but think,
2: you narrowed uh, it further, Pete. You yeah. said it's Judas. It's, it's, the, Judas. Re- Judas, Judas, right. it's the returning Jerusalem mm-hmm. aristocracy's mm-hmm. definition, which Jesus argues against in John 4 with the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He argues against that whole Samaritan uh, right. mutt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a kind of logic that occurs in the so-called historical books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, but that point you made, I think, yeah. is, hugely is huge. It is crucial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it
0: is because I think, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I've looked at it in this sense that if Israel fully understood God, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to reveal exactly. it to us. I if, understand. if we, if Jesus was, and Hebrews one bears this out, if Jesus was a further revelation and a more complete revelation. And the final revelation of who the father is, then we, we have to assume that they misunderstood mm-hmm. some or even all in the Old Testament. But then we also
2: have to assume that Christianity does not supersede Judaism because the history of Christianity is identical to that of the judah story the returning um, aristocrat story it is a triumphalist Uh evil ugly story and you can lay the blame at constantine you can lay the blame at augustine you can go back further and lay the blame with the apologists of the second century i think you could really have to lay the blame at the feet of the jerusalem church james jesus brother and peter the rock Mm -hmm. i think you really for the for the mythic subversion of Christendom, which the Gospel of Matthew buys into this logic. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're really honest about it, Mark, Luke, and John don't buy into the retributive God. They don't add all of this retributive language. Matthew's community, which comes out of Antioch, which is influenced by the James-Peter tradition, buys into that logic, and so does the book of the Revelation. Mm -hmm. To me, it's sad that the New Testament is bookended by the two... Mythic yeah. interpretations of the Jesus story. Interesting. You yeah. know, I think that Matthew and the book of the Revelation kind of belong almost in the intertestamental mm-hmm. literature at the end of that, yeah. you know, prior to Mark, Luke, John, Paul. Mm -hmm. I would even throw Jude back there. I mean, mean, some
3: people, I mean, I know um, some people would argue, though, that Matthew is in some subtle way countering some of those myths. I mean, you you know the text as well as I do, but the uh, the so-called Great Commission, which is not go conquer, but (laughs) but go out and give of yourself to Mm -hmm. make disciples. Uh, You know, in Matthew 15, the Syrophoenician woman is a Canaanite, Mm -hmm. and that's the only place Canaanites are mentioned, and it's a little bit dicey there for a second, but then the end result is that they're actually a part of us now, too. Um, And
0: you're saying that that, that's significant in terms of reflection of the Canaanites in the Old Testament? I think
3: so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's, it's, and and, you know, how how far do you, you know, do do you plot that out at that moment when this community is... is I I mean, you make a a valid point. Matthew's
2: Gospel does have that, quote, universalistic yeah, but Matthew's gospel also reflects intense persecution, mm-hmm. and yes. um, mm-hmm. Matthew's gospel also reflects the retributive response to that persecution that mm-hmm. one finds, for example, in, uh, Miroslav Wolf's exclusion mm-hmm. and embrace. I mean, mm-hmm. Wolf could make a case based on Matthew, mm-hmm. can't make that case based on Luke, Mark, mm-hmm. or, or the later Paul, the Paul of First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. You could, because mm-hmm. why? Paul's still locked into the logic of his visit with Peter, working mm-hmm. and James, he's, he's working, working through, through it. Yeah. And so I think we have to do good history here yes, right, before exactly. we can do
0: oh. decent theology. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I find this even in the post-New Testament mm-hmm. issues, you know, the church councils. A lot of Protestants will point back to church councils for certain key decisions and completely ignore what the other decisions were mm-hmm. that those councils made. So mm-hmm. in one sense, we say, oh, well, the church councils decided such and such. They were, you know, holy men of God to... Oh, but they also said,
3: you know, beat we. beat each other up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Physical but
0: well, they also said that, you know, they were, that we shouldn't honor the Jews anyway, and we shouldn't, you know, we oh, should yeah. pray to Mary and all this kind of stuff. Oh, well, we don't agree with those things. So we pick and choose even from the council, similar the scripture. And it, if you really go back and look at that heritage, and you have to say, wait a minute, something was askew throughout this. It wasn't that. They got some things really inspired by God and some things not at all. I think there was a, a tone to everything with regard to those councils. They were all politically motivated. They were all uh, more about defeating foes versus coming to consensus. You know? So I think there's a, a lot that we have to just become aware of in terms of our history so that we can deal with it not just intellectually but honestly. Well, that's and the... with
5: mercy, and with because mercy, because we are is. not all right either, and we will be changing our minds before our lives are over, exactly. and the next I've already changed my us. mind quite a few oh, times. Oh yeah, so yeah, it's all—it's all about mm-hmm. love and mercy, even yeah. about what we think.
4: Yeah,
5: I know John had something. Yeah,
4: if your—if your faith equals your belief, though, you may never change your beliefs, or you've lost the faith, and you're out. Right. Right. What we were trying to say earlier. Right. Yeah, and that's the challenge that a lot of people face when we talk about these questions
0: are coming up more publicly. I think a lot of people are very much in fear, I, and we, we saw this, Michael, again, and I keep referencing these conversations we're having on Facebook, but a gentleman who has now come around and say, okay, I see the points you're making, I need to rethink this, but he was like, I can't let go of the inspiration of scripture, I, I've got to, I have to have that rock. Okay, take your time,
2: mm-hmm.
6: yeah. go ahead
0: and, and stand on that rock for right now, but allow yourself at some point to wrestle with these very real questions. And people. don't
2: assume that those that don't stand on the rock exactly. are not Christians. Exactly. That's where exactly. he was, that's that's he where was, he was coming from, yeah.
0: And he came around yeah. and graciously. I, I was actually pretty amazed when I woke up this morning and read through the rest of the conversation <laughs> yeah, to see that he was say, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I, he felt like Michael had his hands around his throat and, and then he said, oh, but yeah. I must have been doing that to this other guy. So there's, there is hope, I think, for yeah, sure. There is. But it's... The sense that we, we have to allow people to ask these questions. We have to give them the freedom to wrestle through it. And you said grace and mercy, which is significant. That has to govern all of this because I have to be able to be patient and merciful with somebody who's not at the same, path, same yeah, place in the right. path as I am. Which hard to do. It's very hard to do because, once especially we, if they're so
3: wrong. Exactly.
0: Amen. I mean, I want them to know the truth that I've discovered, you know. But, but yeah, it, it's um, it, it changes how we relate to people when we allow ourselves to view it all through this lens. And I think a lot of that comes back to what we said earlier about viewing things through the lens of Jesus. So, like from my perspective, where I am on my path, the inspiration of Scripture is almost a non-issue for me because I'm more concerned about what did Jesus show us, how did He live. Mm-hmm. And I can read Scripture through that lens. I don't have to worry about some theory of how God dictated or didn't dictate or were they conscious when they wrote, were they just kind of zombies, you know. It, it's mm-hmm. all about what did Jesus show us about the Father and what, what does that mean <clears throat> to my life and how does that impact my relationships and my mm-hmm. interactions with people. And so, you know, we can, I'm sure if we were to talk long enough around this table, we'd find areas that we disagreed on. And yet we're coming together with an assumption of grace and unity, because we know, at the end of the day, we're all followers of Christ.
1: Yeah, and, I, and it, you know, part of the reaction um, comes from if you take away what's been considered as a pillar for so long, and your faith is in that pillar. Yeah. Therefore, your faith is mm-hmm. trashed mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. and you have no faith, and you have to walk away. Or if you take away eternal conscious torment. Right. I, I mean. Which is what Jesus and Paul were doing with
3: us. Right. Us. Yeah.
1: So, exactly. you know, I have yeah. I have students who have, you know, apostatized because this system of evangelicalism mm-hmm. screwed them over yeah. badly because they weren't allowed to ask questions. And mm-hmm. So instead of helping them on their path mm-hmm. of questioning and helping them on their, on their journey, mm-hmm. we kind of throw them out to the dogs. And, and not only, and not
3: that, only see, it's, it's, it's more, I mean, I agree with you, John, it's more than just the the uh, um, the the flexibility in the space to ask questions, but it's also to come to different answers about those yes. questions. That's yeah. I mean, we talk about that's looking at questions and things. I, that's that's very important. But sometimes you just come to different conclusions. Yeah. And then what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know. And that's you know, I, I remember I was speaking someplace a few years ago. It was something like this. It was it was um, about evangelism in the Bible and stuff like that. There were a couple of Greek Orthodox priests out there, which was pretty awesome. And and the Q and A. When they raised their hand and said, "I'm going to get hammered by somebody for something I just said," but, um, and one of them said, "You know, the problem with you evangelical is." He was a great guy, very positive, yeah. but uh, he said, "You you put uh, knowing over being; we put being over knowing." That's right. And I'd never That's had right. it put that way before. And then he yeah. sort of talked about that a little bit. Says so it's, it's really interesting. And you know, John's talking about the pillar. That's a knowing pillar, right?
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, in my experience, I would say that. You mentioned fear, Steve. I mean, I think in my experience, I think the ultimate fear comes down to the assurance of salvation and what right. happens to you after you die. I and think that's very much at stake with anxiety. people. People it's are afraid of, of dying, being lost for eternity, which is the the the. Eternal conversation, as old as the human drama. Death, yeah, and how do we handle that? What do we do with that? But perfect
2: yeah. love casts mm-hmm. out fear. Mm-hmm. It casts out fearful religion. Right. Mm-hmm. It casts out fear. Jesus came to take away the fear of death. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, yeah. we have right. we have so got to say to our evangelical and fundamentalist friends. There's no fear in theology. There's no right. fear in talking and thinking together. Like you said, working it out. Maybe you and I, Pete, come to different answers on things. At the end of the day, we're both going to go back, do our homework, come together again and talk some more and, yeah. work, mm-hmm. and work. And we still work together. You know, and,
1: I, you you know, know. I'm, one of the things that I keep coming back to is the, the, the pragmatics and the, the utilitarian nature of all this because you know, how, do we, how do we get to that point? Right, mm-hmm. you know, perfect love casts out fear. I mean, I'm I'm down with that. You picking <laughs> up what you're putting down. Um, <laughs> it's cool, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it preaches. Um, <laughs> right. That'll pre- But how do we, you know, how do we get from this? Um, this is a bad analogy, but how do we get from the Ivy Tower, right, oh. standing right in the middle of the village? How do we get from there down to the village? Well, I, the way, so uh, that, way
2: I do it's on my Facebook. Posts, I do it speaking engagements. I do it, uh, you know, teaching, teaching s- Sunday school. I mean, you know, at, at the place where people can can understand. You know, you don't have to make things complex or complicated in order to make them
1: godly. Oh, but darn. I don't
5: think. Now yeah, you had, did you have <laughs> something you were going to say about? Well, that? well, no. I mean,
1: I'm, I, you know, I, I'm impressed with this all the time teaching undergrad. You know, I had, I had a hundred. At 110 students a semester, undergrad and about 60 grad, and um, I mean, so you're looking at 160 people. But think of the amount of people that are in our churches Mm -hmm. and who don't have who don't have conversation partners that are trying to push the questions because everybody that's in that building thinks the same way, Uh and they're not reading outside where they stopped reading and. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, my concern is both here, but it's right. also, it has to be here yes, because mm-hmm. yes. we want to, I mean, I believe that the gospel can change people's lives. I mean, it changed my life. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, so it's a praxis thing, you know, that's, you know, it's my pedagogy, right? Yes. Yeah. So how do we do this? Like even church, right? Like I, I just, just about done reading Bartlett's new book, Virtual Virtually Christian, and you know, even this whole idea of church um, buildings and boxes and Mm -hmm. confines Mm -hmm. where you know everyone comes and then we go, Mm -hmm. and you know, we know each other, we talk the same language, um, whether it's good or bad, Mm -hmm. we're talking about the same theology week after week, and. It's like it's like a church with walls. It's you know it's God back in a box. It's God in a box, mm-hmm. well, not Jack in the box, but God in the box. <laughs> and, and every Sunday uh, you
0: crank the handle and he pops up. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so and so even even rethinking what box. it looks like,
1: <laughs> even you know rethinking, um, and really living out what it means to, to be, uh, you know, the assembly of God on earth. Yeah. Um, not in a building week yep. after week yep. I, for,
2: for me part of that is almost begging the question so what I mean by that is this modern American Christianity whether conservative or liberal is fundamentally narcissistic it's I mean my spirituality mm-hmm. both sides believe in the concept of the autonomous individual mm-hmm. it's my faith, my belief, mm-hmm. my salvation yeah, right. um is a is a way of reacting against that what happened that the concept of church what happens is people leave the church and they say well I'm just gonna have my little spirituality mm-hmm. thing and maybe I'll walk a labyrinth today or go watch the sunset and I don't need you John I just don't need to get together with you on Sundays I don't need to sing with you pray with you no, 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 that's all religion the problem there is that if we are not together if we're not um, Eating together, playing together, praying together, singing together, working together. We can have a relationship. And the church is about the relationships between the various parts of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So I'm against the liberal or emergent church reaction of, oh, we don't need Sunday mornings. We don't need, you know, church building. No, no. If we need a building in order to get together, then have a building. Right. But if we don't need a building we've got a kitchen table. Right. You know? And this is still a building. It's my home. Right, you know? I mean we could sit out in the backyard. It's a nice day, but we should have the the point is is that you just can't throw the ecclesiological baby out with the the, the, the bathwater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so doing church, what does it mean to do church? Well, the first thing it means is you've got to do church in your closest relationships with people that are believers. So for me, that's my wife. If I can't do church with my wife, what does that mean? Singing together, praying together, talking Bible together, doing theology together, um, learning together, parenting, grandparenting, uh, making friends, all the things that are church, you know, ecclesial. Same with Jonathan. I mean, he's my best friend, but we eat together, we play together, we work together. Um, we don't sleep together, but just about everything that I would do with my wife, with the exception of that, we do together, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm c- concerned that right now there's a tendency for us to take our, our spiritual and ecclesial... Uh, thinking in deeper into narcissism rather than into the phenomenon of community and interdividual relations as Renee puts it. That's my concern. But I,
0: I hear what yes. you're saying, Michael. As one who has not been part of the institutional church for a decade, I obviously would want to flesh that out a little bit with you and, and see how far apart we were on that. But I will say this. I I look at it what I think is from the opposite direction. That relationship and community is our church, versus we have to do church in a way that builds and fosters relationship. I think that one of the problems is that we continue to try to fit our new revelation, so to speak, into old wineskins, into old paradigms, and to say, okay, we've got to continue That you said something earlier that I wasn't sure if I wanted to push back on or not, but I think I'll bring it up just for the fun of it. You said, you know, it means we don't throw out the Bible, we don't throw out church, we don't throw out the Trinity, et cetera. But I think at the same time, we have to say, how does this inform those things that we think are non-negotiable? What does it mean, you know, when you say church? What does church mean? Because it may look very different for me than it does for you, or it may look very different for all of us than we think it should. The doctrine of the Trinity is a good example for me. I don't necessarily throw out the doctrine of the Trinity, but I say, what, how did we first of all get to the doctrine of the Trinity, and what, what impact does that have on our theology? Because here's my concern. Peter and Paul both make statements in the book of Acts, and I'm just using this as an yeah, example, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to go off on sure. the tangent of debating the Trinity, but Peter and Paul both make statements in the book of Acts about this man whom God chose. Right. They very obviously emphasized the humanity of Jesus in their preaching and God's anointing of that man. We come along and say Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, he is fully God, fully human, and oh by the way, we don't really care about the fully human part, because everything he did was because he was God. Mm. So I see the doctrine of the Trinity as potentially a, um, a, a barrier to understanding our real relationship to Jesus and to the Father. So when Jesus comes along in John 17 and prays, Father, make them one as we are one, them with each other and them with us, we go, oh, well, obviously he didn't mean the way the Father relates to the Son in the Trinity. He must mean just help him get along. And so, you know, and, and I'm just, again, using that as an example of, okay, we need to say, does that doctrine further the community and the fellowship that we have, or does it actually put up a roadblock and cause us to see Jesus so much as something other than us that we can't relate to him. My first response is, if that's your doctrine of the
2: Trinity, get rid of it. Because what you've done is the the first thing you've done is you've used um, a, a definition of person that is mm-hmm. foreign to the Jewish way of thinking. It's it's a, it, a it's very Hellenistic, and B it's very Cartesian, and three it's very Enlightenment oriented. So your definition <laughs> of person your definition of it. person already is going to mm-hmm. screw up your doctrine of the Trinity. So second is, yes, the Trinity is hugely important. It is, it is the way that we say, how does Jesus reframe our view of God? That's the real question here. And that's what a real doctrine, that's what the New Testament writers are doing. They're not saying, is, is um, Jesus like God? They're saying, is God like Jesus? It's, they're reframing their theology based on their Christology rather than the other way around. Okay. that's second piece third piece is this where is liturgy in your life liturgy is the heart and soul of what it means when we gather together Leiturgos, the work of the people where is liturgy outside of the context of your notion of ecclesiology or church and by that I mean what's the importance for you of baptism
0: and Eucharist? And the answer, honestly, is I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working through that, to yeah, be I honest, think. because I, I don't know. I I have... And I'm the first to admit that I am quick to deconstruct and very slow to reconstruct. Yeah, it's all good. Um, and, and this actually we should have a conversation about that for another episode because I, I think it's a good yeah. discussion to have. Ray and I are obviously on the same page, so we just kind of encourage each other in what we believe already. Um, but I, I would love to discuss that with you more in another episode. But it's it it's it's a good question. It's a fair question, and I'm going to table it.
4: Yeah, my, my comeback to that would be if, if your baptism has been or the baptizing you're currently doing is baptism into a holding pattern, then it has nothing to do with New Testament baptism, which was baptism into a movement. And so I understand why there are people saying, I'm just going to have to do without church, I'm going to have to do without baptism. Um, Trinity uh, is the most volatile, um, sexy, uh, category-breaking um, thought experiment that's ever been done in, in, in human history. However, because of that, for that very reason... Uh, people sex. have not been able <laughs> word have sex. not been able to assimilate it, understandably, okay. and because it was, I mean, it was it was done by uh, geeks who could see further than other people the implications of if God was in Jesus and God was in the heavens, then what? Uh, and they saw those implications and tried to work it out in this very dynamic these very dynamic thought forms that collapsed the Hellenistics. You may think this, and you may not, you may not think that all that that stuff. <clears throat> And so because not all of us can follow those guys, we've got these very poor imitations of that that don't derive from faith, simply derives from, not even from belief. Belief is something that you struggle your way to when you're told, say this after me. That's not a belief. Mm -hmm. And so I understand why someone has to be non-Trinitarian as part of a rehab program, you know, from (laughs) Christendom. So I'm not at all upset. (laughs) And and people... I'm I'm in rehab now. I like that. I'll I'll be be (laughs) Trinitarian. I'll always be Trinitarian. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I'm still, with Kierkegaard, trying to work my way to being a Christian. And so when I see other people ahead of me who are Christians, when I'm really not following Jesus, I just know how to talk the talk, I see people far ahead of me who are actually living like Christ, I say they're ahead of me. And so they're, they're further down the path I'm trying to get down. And so because um, people have had what's been called a, a coronary of, of, of the heart uh, have had spiritual heart attacks because of hardening of the categories that John Olaf was talking mm-hmm. about, um where you, you have <laughs> He's a great yeah, one. one of it's all plagiarism. It's all plagiarism. All plagiarism. <laughs> this is from uh, somebody's review on Books and Culture of Bart Ehrman's misquoting Jesus. And Bart <laughs> was very upfront about the fact that he went through Moody, then Westminster, then he became atheist. Princeton. And and who, who reviewed um uh, he went to Princeton. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, i track of your Trinity stuff. It was Moody Princeton, because mm-hmm. that's where Metzger was. And, but he went to Princeton still with the same hardened mm-hmm. categories. And eventually, those categories could not handle the traffic. Uh, and, and so he had, well, had a, had a car- coronary okay. of the mm-hmm. faith. And I'm borrowing that from a books and culture review of his misquoting Jesus, where he went from I can, the scriptures can only mean right. in this way to, oh, okay, then they don't mean anything. Yeah. And that that's what I'm, I'm hoping we can save a number of uh, younger evangelicals from. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I would say that you can't just get them to take this, this giant leaf out of it. You have to work with what they have. So you go to Exodus and you talk about the 11 commandments in, in Exodus 20. Um, The 11th, of course, is in the very last verse, where it's a commandment against upskirting, And then you go to Exodus 22, uh, verse 29, where God very clearly commands the uh, human sacrifice of the firstborn son. And then you go to Ezekiel, where he references that exact command in Exodus 22, which he believes is, unlike Paul, given by God rather than a congregation of angels, and he Ezekiel is further confident that not only did God give the command to sacrifice firstborn sons, but he gave it for theological reasons. He wanted Israel to commit an abomination so he could then nail them. And you talk, <laughs> yes. you show the the, the, the Bible thumpers uh-huh. what they're thumping, and you know they, and, and how relevant this is. I mean, what's more relevant than a commandment against upskirting in our age? And, and things they've never seen before, you know, keep the conversation interesting, then show them that, that people like Ezekiel are, are, are uh, happy with texts that they're not currently even incorporating into their paradigm. And furthermore, Ezekiel's doing theological things that, that, that they wouldn't have done with those texts mm-hmm. had they even known they were there. And then you go to Paul and point out what he does, where he tells Peter, what's at stake here, Peter, is not just kosher, and it's not just a difference in uh, missiology. What's at stake is you either do or do not believe Jesus. Either Jesus says something new about God or he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it all stands or falls on whether you, which table you're going to sit at the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And, and, the activity, huh? that, that's and, and so awesome. what I want to say today is we're past that. I don't see very many people, and they're, they're around. If you've listened to Gotham closely enough and if, if you follow certain not just evangelical streams, you no. can actually get to the place where you need, when you sacrifice, uh, excuse me, when you, <coughs> <coughs> wrong, wrong term. Right. When you circumcise your son <laughs> in a fundamentalist household, you do want to do it on day eight not just any day, okay? There are right. These people who are still alive and well, okay? And what I want to say is they are being consistent with the evangelical hermeneutic. Yep. Mm-hmm. They really are. Yeah. They, yep. they they, are on Peter's side of the argument with Paul. Mm-hmm. And they're not about to take that leap that Paul took, right. where, which is totally apocalyptic. Like, well, everything changes now. There's a new cosmos. No, not for them, no. The way the cosmos was originally set up uh, it, with... with uh, divinely metered violence is still the way it's going to be uh, arranged mm-hmm. today.
2: And this is where liberal Christianity I think is is making one of its big failures. They throw Paul out. They mm-hmm. throw Paul out as, as a woman hater, as a yeah. patriarchal this and that. Mm-hmm. They are so misreading Paul mm-hmm. in the progressive Christian tradition that they have lost um, I think what would be their strongest ally
0: right. if they took mm-hmm. Paul mm-hmm. seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Say that loud, Pete. I agree.
3: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's right for the first time. Oh, uh, I've, got
0: a, I've got a scholar backing me up.
2: Woo-hoo.
6: Ooh, there
3: you
0: go. Yeah. Um, I think we probably ought to bring the at least the recorded conversation to a close. Any Anybody want to jump in with any final thoughts? So This has been a terrific discussion, and we've hit a lot of nice rabbit trails in the process. Mm. This is
2: to all the b 2 beers
0: listening to this.
2: Comment on this, because if you like it, We'll bring Steve back to Lancaster and we'll get this group together again. There you go.
4: And I just want to reiterate what we've all been saying earlier, that uh, you can't get people uh, to climb the stairway in two steps. Um, yeah. One or, or step even, on a Or time. even to go down a slippery slope in one slide. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And finally, at the end of the day... Uh, we're all going to have to despair at the questions that John Olaf brought up <laughs> if there be no such thing as the Holy Spirit. If mm-hmm. it's really up to us to change the paradigm, we may as well just give up and go home. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. we need to share with mm-hmm. Jesus the faith that his little bit of walking up and down and staying away from the Judeans with the uh, Mm -hmm. Southern Kingdom reconstruction agenda and hanging out with Galileans who weren't going to lynch him, Mm -hmm. that that, that this was going to change the whole world all by itself. I think you need to believe with him that, no, it wasn't going to. It's not enough, and what we do is not enough. There has to be, um, well, excuse the archaic terminology here, but a third part of the Trinity. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> when I get out of
0: rehab, I'll be able to process that. Um, no, no, I, I, like, I like what you just said because I was thinking that I forgot I had had that thought when John Oliver was talking about you know how do we change uh, basically what's happening on a wide scale basis. And I'll, I'll use the metaphor uh, or the analogy of my own life in that uh, my wife and I were foster parents, licensed foster parents for a while, and we adopted a daughter through that foster care system. I cannot single-handedly come even close to addressing all of the needs of all the children in the world. But for my daughter, Mm -hmm. her life has changed. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And I think, John, the answer to your question is we don't try to change the world. No. We change our world around us. We change ourselves. We change ourselves, exactly, Pete. And we make sure that each person... If I'm worried about... And I, I found this so often in some of the ministries I was a part of. We were always trying to reach the world. Yeah. And we'd bring people in. And you have thousands of people in some of the churches I worked in. Coming in on Sunday morning. 3,000, 4,000. I worked mm-hmm. in some big churches in Texas. Because everything's bigger in Texas. And they would come in on Sunday morning and they'd sing their hearts out. And we'd preach at them. And, you know, everything... But we didn't really care about those four or 5,000 people there because there was still a whole world of 6 billion Mm -hmm. others to reach. And so they were just part of the machine. I want to see us worry first and foremost about the people around this table. And then when we leave here, the people that we come in contact with at Starbucks... Or, hmm. I don't know, John, are you stopping for 10 more cups of coffee on the way back to Jerusalem? No, <laughs> or three. Or anybody that we come into contact because I see that as the ministry of Jesus. Mm. Jesus said, I have other sheep that I need to reach as well. But the people that came to him, he stopped and he ministered. That's right. Who
5: is my neighbor?
0: Yeah, exactly. And that was the whole point. of the, is Those guys were walking right past the needy person, mm-hmm. their neighbor. Mm-hmm. On their way to some other unknown, unquantifiable, unseeable host that they were ministering to. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying, this guy, the Samaritan, the heretic, the one who was not in any way going to be part of the kingdom, exactly, the outsider, he stopped and showed love to that one man. And you think that changed the life of that guy that was on the roadside? Absolutely. Mm,
2: absolutely. Mm -hmm. You're saying, think globally, act locally, that great phrase. I I think Jacques Galol has it, but I don't think he came up with it. Lori and I have, have, since we started preaching peace, um, the metaphor we've adopted for ourselves is that we're um, theological Johnny Appleseeds. All mm. we do is sow seed. Uh-huh. You know, we're not about trying to um, rebuild forests. We're just yeah. sowing and seed. Mm. Yeah. And... Um, And that's been important for us because it just means, you know, I interact with one person at a time on Mm -hmm. Facebook and, Mm -hmm. and, or, you know, um, whoever, you know, we're we're just, we're just dealing with the people we're dealing with. Yeah. The second thing is, is that um, nobody's called us, the the problem with with this, we have to save the world, this, um, and I don't even want to call it a messiah complex, that's a bad use of the term Mm -hmm. messiah. Mm -hmm. You go going crazy. It is. And it's watch. my. And what it is, it's my medic. The yeah. more people I can reach out to, the more people that like me on Facebook, the more people that I'm ministering to, the more Holy Spirit I have, the more God favors me. It's all my medic, and that's yeah. It's negatively my medic. All I'm doing is saying, well, Pete, I've got you beat by 25 friends on Facebook. Right. Do well, you? Yeah, no, yeah. I do <laughs> It's my computer.
1: I mean, it's not about making people... Yeah." I mean, I don't want anyone to really be like me, right mm-hmm. but right. Um, I mean we want to we certainly want to help people I mean I want to help my students at the end of the day be better humans in year five mm-hmm. once they've gone through four years of college mm-hmm. so that so that they're they're thinking they're loving and they're have a better understanding of themselves yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 mean I, I really think that's the gospel. I really do. And, I mean, the gospel is not just telling, but showing.
2: Mm-hmm. It's incarnational. I mean, well, yeah. the, the last thing I want to say is that in my relationship with my wife and my best friend, who are both at this table, we don't see eye to eye on every jot and tittle. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes, I think, our theological conversations, or what I would call our ecclesiology, mm-hmm. so much fun. Mm-hmm. And such a learning process. And I may have the education, I may know the original languages, or whatever. I may be working on a PhD, but I learn more from these two mm-hmm. than just about anybody I know because I'm in relationship with them. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. my little. Two and that steps.
1: takes vulnerability, and that takes <laughs> a willingness to be wrong, and mm-hmm. it also right. means that you can't you can't live in fear. Yeah, I mean, the people that we can call our friends are people that we're not afraid of. That's right, mm-hmm. and people that we can be vulnerable to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, those are rare. finds.
5: Mm-hmm. In conclusion, what I'd like to say is that if we're on a journey, if we're walking a path, <clears throat> what is the harm in falling down? Mm-hmm. I and mean, when our kids are learning how to walk, right. we don't shame them. Oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you fell <laughs> down. Spank up,
2: <him>. right? Spank up. <laughs>
5: right. It's like, and then just hop back down. up and keep going. And that's, yeah. you know... So if, they, if they
2: get hurt, you love them. Right, yes.
5: exactly, and that's what God does for us, and that's, yes. that's what following Jesus is about. Just just go on the way and mm-hmm. make sure you're headed toward the light and, yeah. and that you're, you know, wanting to live in love and you're inviting the Spirit in every day and, mm-hmm. and do your best.
2: And the thing is, we're not on that road alone. No. Right. We're walking together hand-in-hand hand with those that are with us. And we're yeah. in a yoke with Jesus. Oh, in a yoke so, with Jesus, yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah.
3: Um, I mean, I think what we're talking about on one level really is humility. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's a term we throw around a lot, but it's it's, it's excruciatingly difficult to be humble. And um, Mm -hmm. I remember uh, in seminary, one of my professors, a wonderful man, Sinclair Ferguson, he sort of stopped a class at the beginning as a doctrine of the Holy Spirit was a class. And he... um, he talked about how he's introduced at, at a conference, as a blah, 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 and, and a humble Christian, and he stopped, and he sort of lectured the class on why that's a really bad way to introduce somebody, because that's <laughs> supposed to be our core value, not something that's, oh, in addition, <laughs> in addition look how surprisingly, <laughs> this guy's actually humble. He's, of course, <laughs> that's in the Reformed tradition, where maybe that is isn't how it, you know I mean? sorry, <laughs> I had kind to of get that in, but uh, maybe maybe that's an element there, but um, <laughs> You know, and that's uh you know, in my little babbling <laughs> with things like contemplative Christianity, which I know so little about, but um, mm-hmm. the the role of ego and really screwing up our lives and mm-hmm. how, um, that's another way of saying humility, you know, yeah. and it's uh, and when we do that a lot of these problems I mean humility and love are flip sides, you know, the same coin. Yeah. And and to live that way, that's that's, that's harder than learning Greek or Hebrew and all those mm-hmm. other things.
0: Well, know. and, and yeah. in, in light of that, yeah, I'm certainly and quite obviously reminded of the words of Paul in Philippians to to have the mind, the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Right. And, yeah. you know, I Ray and I have often talked on the podcast about how we look at the verse where Paul says that we have the mind of Christ, and we look at that not as an individualistic thing, that, oh, I'm a Christian, so I have the mind of Christ in me, but that we as a community... Mm-hmm. Possess the mind of Christ in community, and and you have to have humility in that regard. You know when Paul talks about gathering in First Corinthians fourteen, and he says that that one speaks at a time, and if someone else gets a revelation, the first one becomes silent. You know we flip that around in our churches. We mm-hmm. say everybody else has to listen to the pastor speak, and you can't speak up and, and all this stuff. And and then there was even this allowance for weighing what was said in mm-hmm. that context of community, right. of saying this. This is what is being said, or maybe even I think there's an an element to Paul's exhortation there that allows for correction of what is said. Mm -hmm. So that we don't have to speak ex cathedra, (laughs) you know, or or assume that we are, but that we we are corporately coming to an understanding of the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we've gotten a little bit of that around this table today. So, there you have it. Uh, Roundtable discussion it was a fun time for us and a great time to discuss some things. And as you could tell in the conversation, there wasn't always complete agreement on everything. That's what makes these discussions so much fun, I think. And what makes Beyond the Box so much fun for us and for our listeners is that uh, this is not about coming to uh, full agreement and signing off on the same doctrinal statement, but it's about exploring, uh, as we say in our intro, the wide open spaces of uh, our life in Christ and um, just coming to a, a, some kind of consensus maybe as opposed to full agreement, but at least understanding where each other's at and uh, being able to discuss these things without getting upset with each other and, or as may have happened in uh, centuries past without getting violent or even uh, killing each other <laughs> over it. Um, but anyway, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to each of the uh, roundtable participants that joined us for that discussion again thank you michael and Lori, for opening your home and hosting that discussion it was a great time hope to do it again sometime uh in some form or another and uh just want to leave you with a little bit of uh opportunity for you to comment to us the most active place that we have discussions online is on our facebook page so i certainly encourage you if you haven't already found that page and liked it to go do that and participate in the discussions It is uh, facebook.com slash beyondthebox, and uh, you can join in discussion there or start a discussion or whatever. We also uh, post our uh, podcast episodes. When we uh, post them, we post notices to Twitter. You can follow us on there. We don't use it for much else other than notifying you of new episodes, but twitter.com slash btbpodcast is our Twitter address. Um, and then, of course, you can also go to our website at beyondtheboxpodcast.com. And uh, if you would like to leave us an audio comment, there's a widget on that site that allows, us, allows you to click on it, put in your phone number, and our system will call you, and you can leave a voicemail for us. Uh, or you can call us directly at area code 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX, and leave us an audio comment there. Or if you'd just like to call up and say, hey, this is whatever your name is from wherever you are, and you're listening to Beyond the Box, we like sometimes to throw those into the intro of the podcast as well. Uh, Again, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Feel free to comment on the Facebook page or on the blog itself, and uh, we look forward to continuing this discussion further with you. Take care.